Hello. <coughs> Wouldn't you know, he starts with a cough. <laughs> I do this for a living sometimes. Anyway, hello, and welcome to the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School from Maui, Hawaii. Good to be with you today. And uh, Merry Christmas. Gosh, uh, the first words I heard when I woke up this morning was my wife saying, sort of, as she was sucking in a breath, there is four days till Christmas. And, I, <laughs> you know, every year I promise myself it will not come up on me so quickly, but it always does. And uh, I never cease to be amazed at how amazed I am by time. It just always, always, I never get used to the fact that uh, it seems to accelerate as, as uh as it unfolds, as as uh, as we get older, is that it? <clears throat> For whatever reason, David Viscott was a, a medical doctor, a psychiatrist, uh, a radio talk show host. I worked with at KABC for several years, and uh, I loved David and admired him greatly. He died way too young. He had so much to give, and on the subject of time speeding up. Uh, David said that his theory about this was that every year that we live is a smaller percentage of our life than the year before. <coughs> so if you're 10 years old, one year is uh, 10% of your life, of course. But by the time you reach 20, it's half of that, right? It's 5% uh, of your life. And so the longer you get, each year represents a smaller percentage of your life's experience, and he thinks that's part of it. I don't know, but anyway, Merry Christmas. And whatever religious or spiritual holidays you celebrate around this time of solstice, uh, uh, I hope they're filled with joy and love and happiness and, and a lot of charity, too. It's a wonderful time of the year, and so whether you're celebrating solstice or Christmas as a uh, not only great secular holiday, but also a, a spiritual holiday, the birth of the Christ, or Hanukkah, or Ramadan, uh, Kwanzaa, whatever you have, New Year's, um, I hope it's a great holiday season. And thanks for joining us today. We're going to talk uh, in today's class about the esoteric meaning of Christmas. And what is esoteric anyway? Um, even the word esoteric is a bit esoteric in that few people even know its meaning. Uh, esoteric literally means for the few, as opposed to exoteric, which means for everybody, uh, for the many, or for the common person. It's easily understood and quickly accessed and... and uh, and thought about if it's exoteric, but if it's esoteric, it merits further study. And that which is esoteric, another way of discussing it, a way that I'm more familiar with, is not that it's exclusive, meaning for the few, but that only a few people really have the time or are willing to dedicate the time to look at symbolism. Now, for most of us, somewhere around the 8th or the ninth grade, we began to learn from our English teachers and literature teachers about the nature of symbolism. 
looking at the symbolism in the name of a character in this novel or that, or certain situations that represent, if you take a, a breath and step back and detach and then mindfully get the bigger picture, you see that this situation, uh, like the name was symbolic, this situation is symbolic of a common situation that people run into in life, whatever that happens to be. And so the esotericist is a poet, really. It's a woman or a man who is willing to look deeper at the layers of meaning and the meaning behind the appearance of things. That's the way Plato would talk about it. He would refer to the appearance of things as that which is not real, but merely an appearance, uh, an appearance visually because light is reflecting off it, or uh, appearance in terms of our other senses and sensations, and yet our five physical senses give us tiny little slivers of the spectrum of information. And even having said that, um, the objective qualities of appearance are usually outweighed by the subjective qualities of appearance. In other words, the way things look to us, the appearance of things, often tells us more about ourselves than about the world around us. There is a aphorism that is attributed to Anas Nin, but I believe goes back to the Talmud in the Hebrew Bible that um, translates something like, we see the world not as it is so much, but rather as we are. We see the world as we are rather than as it is. You, know, you hear that? And so the esotericist is on top of that and says, well, yeah. So we look at Christmas, and religion in general has to be looked at esoterically if you don't you end up being a fundamentalist, or I suppose somewhere in between, but that would be, you know, an esotericist to some degree, uh, only the most orthodox, the most fundamental, is taking any of this stuff literally, right? And so they see, for example, the great stories of the Bible, of Eve being made out of Adam's rib, or Noah being 800 years old and building this boat, or Jonah being swallowed by the whale, um, literally, right? Not merely as some really spiritually inspired, given the era in which they're written, literature, it's like, no, we're going to lock into this. And no matter what science tells us, as we get smarter, we're going to cling to this most orthodox, most rigid, and most fundamental point of view and that's where we get in the problem you know it's we have we we have this fear in this country and in the western world about the jihad uh the muslim jihad uh but we have just as much of a problem with the overly orthodox christians and jews as well and of course all three of these religions are fighting over the same ground they're all variations on a theme of redemption and salvation, uh, they all trace their lineage to the same single individual, Abraham. And uh, you could
can learn much more about the religious teachings of the Hebrew Bible, which God included in some ways in the Christian Bible by reading the Koran, which comes along, you know, a thousand years later or so, <laughs> with information that was left out of the Hebrew Bible and uh, a different take through a different lineage of prophets on a lot of the same information that we were exposed to through basic cultural Judeo-Christian teachings. So we want to avoid that, at least it would be my call, and if you're listening to this program right now, it's likely you understand the limitations of being too literal and and, and too fundamental or too orthodox, just too rigid, just too rigid in your belief system. So then we have the varying degrees of esoterica, just how esoteric, how far are you willing to go? So that's what I want to explore a little bit with the idea of Christmas as the birth of the Christos. Now, the story of Christmas uh, varies. It's not found in all of the Gospels, and it's told in a variety of different ways. And I'm not going to dwell on that, because you all know the basic story, which is sort of an, an assembly of whatever is available, about the birth of this, uh, this uh, child, Jesus, in the city of Nazareth. And, of course, people did not have last names. I'm always stunned by how many Christians labor under the belief that Christ was Jesus' last name, like it was Joe Christ, the carpenter, and Mary Christ, his wife, who gave birth to this son. Je no, I mean, nobody had last names then. You were you were Bill of uh, Schenectady or uh, Sally from uh, Peoria, you know, or you might have been known by your uh, profession. So a blacksmith might be Bill Smith, right? So this child was born Jesus of Nazareth, but of course born in Bethlehem, you know the story, in a manger because there was no room in the inn. But the esoterics of the story are rich and beautiful and important because this story predates the birth of Jesus of Nazareth. Yes. Yes, there are stories of virgin births bringing forth prophets, ascended masters, saviors, and those who had been Christed. That's a Greek term. The Christos meant savior or uh, redeemer, uh, Messiah, the one who's coming to help us all out because obviously we don't get it. So that's what the Christos is about, in the birth of a, a virgin birth, no less. And what do Catholics call it? The Immaculate. No mess, right? No, no stains. Just the Immaculate Conception of a body imbued with spirit rather than semen, don't you see, is an allegory for the birth of not just a baby, but in a larger sense, the birth of this Christos, the birth of the Christ. And so the esoteric meaning of Christmas, and of course this happened sometime in June, 
<laughs> like all the other Christian holidays, it got moved around to line up with mostly pagan holidays uh, to sort of co-op the pagan holiday. If you can't beat them, join them, right? So it's celebrated at the time of solstice. And again, we have Hanukkah and Ramadan uh, celebrated at this time because it's midwinter. It's the solstice. and uh, It's an ancient holiday for the coming of spring, the coming of light. Don't you see it here too? What a perfect time, the birth of an awareness that there is a renewal at hand, a rebirth. Spring is coming, but who else is coming, you see? Somebody to save us? Or maybe in the esoteric tradition, it's not someone, but something, a level of awareness, a level of understanding, a message of peace on earth and goodwill toward all men that somehow could last more than three or four days, right? Uh, it, it just strikes me as odd that that at Christmas time, it's beautiful that we have what little time we do to celebrate peace on earth and goodwill toward all men and understand perhaps the meaning of charity as more than just giving but including capital C charity, the old concept, more than giving, loving your neighbor as you love yourself because you have transcended the appearance that you're separate, you see. And you begin to see yourself in each other and that which is divine in all things. That's capital C charity. And that's what's necessary for peace on earth and goodwill to all men. But, of course, four or five days later, all that rubs off, and certainly by the end of the year, it's every man for himself. And uh, what happened to peace on earth and goodwill? Well, that was a nice holiday, but we pulled down the Christmas tree, we packed up the lights, and I guess with it went all this joy and happiness and we're quick now to be about the business of competing and and uh, and withholding and feeling separated and defensive, right? But an immaculate conception is a birth of spirit, a birth of an idea, the birth of an awareness or a level of consciousness that says you really got to find the middle ground. The Christos or the Buddha nature of things is in the middle of spirit and matter. Okay. It is a balancing act that we do. It correlates to the idea of an oversoul, uh, a higher self that stands above and free of form, but that doesn't even occur to most Christians because they're told that the soul is fashioned upon conception. It's heresy to suggest the soul existed before it was incarnated. Even though early church fathers believed that, they were found guilty of heresy. Google origin, O-R-I-G-E-N, one of the early church fathers in the second century, and see what he has to say about the preexistence of the soul. And throughout the history of the Catholic Church and even the Protestant after the Reformation, this has been banned. This has been taboo. You're not
not allowed to talk about the idea that in the beginning there was a there was a heaven or a buddhic plane a reservoir of souls that kept incarnating maybe once maybe according to eastern philosophy many times but in any event extending itself from the soul not not this uh inferior idea this illogical concept that the beginning happens over and over and over again and in every moment new souls are being fashioned and tucked into tiny little baby bodies okay so the birth of spirit would be not just a virgin birth as hard as that is to conceive of but the birth of spirit and consciousness and in that esoteric sense virgin birth existed in spiritual literature um previous to uh, the, the actual birth of Jesus of Nazareth in Bethlehem in what we call the year zero right the whole calendar is based on uh, the uh, the current era and uh, the birth of Christ of course the Egyptians had a virgin birth the uh, Greco-Roman pantheon of gods talked about virgin births of course they had people being born out of uh, the heads of gods and out of the thighs of, you know, babies being born out of men's bodies in the most strange and unusual ways. So we can see the allegory here. None of this is to be taken literally. Mythology, it just, none of it makes sense. And yet it becomes so rich and so instructive when we let go of the orthodoxy, loosen our grip on the reins and wax philosophical, allowing ourselves to look poetically at what that means. So maybe a nice thing to consider at Christmas time, whether you're a Christian or or not, member of some other religion, or just spiritual but not religious, as people like to say, or maybe just intellectually curious, would be to think of this as a time to reflect upon the spiritual master that is within us uh, waiting to be born or the infant Christ that's in us that needs attention and nourishing and uh, you know I want to say cultivation right training We have a such a victim mentality, generally speaking, we human beings, that even concepts like love, we think we become victims of love, that we fall in love. And I suppose any kind of spiritual growth then we tend to think of as being done to us. So if I'm going to grow spiritually, that's going to happen to me. The idea of a will to love of bringing your intention into wanting to embody love and to be that love, to bring your intention or your willpower to being aspirational in the first place, to really honoring the desire to want to know yourself and to understand 
who you are as a, not only a human but as a spiritual being what is this this longing in my heart what is this appetite that uh, I cannot feed uh, with food a thirst that I, I I I cannot quench with beverage what is this uh, discomfort that uh, well it becomes a discomfort if we ignore it and deny it and it feels a lot like romantic love but it's so much more than that um, I mentioned recently and I really love the allegory that uh, Roberto Saggioli I think gets credit for but probably others have said it throughout history that this holy longing this uh, divine homesickness this deep aspiration to understand ourselves and, and refine ourselves and and be more than the beasts that we've come out of right is is not unlike the longing of a flower or a plant to know its source the source of its life and to turn toward the sun and reach for the sun and even track it across the sky the sun being a source of life uh, for the for for um, all of the kingdoms plant kingdom the animal kingdom the human kingdom so what is this longing that's the Christos that's the baby Christ that wants to grow up and it is the Buddha nature I would argue also it is an awareness of I am not simply what I seem to be. Don't we all know people who think they are their money? Or they think they are the car they drive? Or the house they live in? Or that their identity is bound up in who they know? Or who knows them? Or what country club they belong to? Or what their golf handicap is? Right? or what names they can drop about who they know. We all know people who think they are that, and yet it's pretty easy. It doesn't take a whole lot of uh, maturation or sophistication to see how shallow that is. Uh, even beauty, we say, well, you know, what's really beautiful is, is, is deeper than the appearance, the surface. It's what's inside you. Okay, we know that. And yet it's easy to forget. And a lot of people don't know that. And so they think they are the things that they have gathered around them, these separated objects, these material goods or, or relationships of status or prestige or whatever. Um, in fact, of course, those are appearances and in fact who we are is much more substantial or said another way that which is substantial has to be found at a deeper level in one's heart so to speak and in their minds and in the depth of character uh, the way they behave when they're under pressure their their values when stressed those kinds of things well in the same way that we are not the appearance of things physically there, there's more that we are not. By the way, this is called, an, in philosophy, an apophatic approach to finding God. It is to negate that which is not. So an apophatic approach is what I'm calling for here where I say, 
you know, I got a nice car. I like my car. It uh, is reliable and comfortable, and uh, you know, it's fine. It's not all, didn't cost all that much. It's not that luxurious, but uh, I like my car. It serves me fine. But I am not my car. All right, I am not my house. I am not my money or the people that I happen to know. I am not status or leverage or prestige. Well, what are you left with? Well, most people say, I am my name. I say, you know, who are you? They say, they give you a name. Or if you press them, they'll tell you what they do for a living. You know, I'm uh, Bill Smith, and I drive a truck, or I'm a brain surgeon, I'm a school teacher, I'm a farmer, whatever. Well, that's fine, but... Again, we're we're sort of back to labels, aren't we? Isn't that sort of like the car or who you know or the names that you do? That's your name, and that's what you do for a living, but who are you? You see, well, you press them even further, they might say, well, I'm my body. This physical body, take my picture. This is me. All right, now we're getting close. We're down to the what an esotericist would call the lower correspondence of the divine trinity, which is the physical, the emotional, and the mental nature in man. I am my body, I am my emotional feelings, and I am my thoughts. All right. Well, that's much closer to home, isn't it, than I am my car or my house or my property. We're getting closer but you know what? An esotericist has to begin to consider that you're really not even that. You have to mindfully begin to consider that you have a body just like you have a car, and you better take care of it or it's going to break down. And ownership is an important concept, but you are not really your body. Okay? Bodies will change more readily than character. Well, I'd argue also you're not your thoughts. You're not what you think of yourself. And what you think of others says something about who you are, but you couldn't define self simply in terms of what I think of other people. Yeah, that Ennisnin quote, we see the world not as it is, but as we are. There is something, people don't know how transparent they are when they judge other people. You know, a philosopher or an esotericist may watch, watch you judge others and be much less interested in what it says about those you're describing than what it says about you. That's part of crossing over from a common worldview to an esoteric worldview. And you're really not your thoughts. And your feelings, I think we're getting closer, because, you know, thoughts could be wrong, and feelings could be misunderstood, but you've never had a feeling that was wrong. You are much more likely to be your emotional nature than your mental nature, but no, you're not even that. The Christos, or Buddha nature, within you is none of those things. Not even your thoughts or your feelings, much less your body <clears throat> or your uh, your stuff. That the ultimate identity comes from mindfully detaching 
and being that which remains when the body is still and the mind is quiet and the emotional nature is calm. Occasionally, a really bright student will say to me, with respect to the website Steve and I do, Focus Passion. How can we meditate with passion? That's a contradiction, isn't it, Michael? I thought a meditation had to be dispassionate. Don't we purposefully still the body and quiet the mind and, and calm the emotional nature? Well, then why are you calling it focused passion? I get the focus. If the mind is quiet, it's safe enough to focus like a laser beam or like magnifying glass. I got the focus, but the passion, that sounds like getting all worked up again. How can you meditate on passion? It's my understanding that when the body is still and the mind is quiet and the emotional turbulence that we experience on a daily basis becomes calm, there is a feeling, a quality of love, a frequency that remains above, a fire that burns, a passion, and that's the essence of who we are, and that's what we could celebrate, that Christos, that Buddha nature, being born on Christmas Day, or on solstice, or every day in your morning meditation, or every evening in your evening meditation, or with every breath you choose to consciously take, you can be born again to a higher sense of self, to reorient yourself from the part of you that's frightened to the part of you that knows that this world is a backdrop for personal growth and unfoldment. This is class. This is the holodeck of learning. Right? That's what this is, is a classroom in which the one life experiences itself in a separated form. How could the one know itself fully if it was always the one? Would the one not have to be at some point, the many, and create an illusion of being separated from itself and even suffer the fear and the alienation of that appearance of separation so as to know itself more completely. That's what we're seeing working out. There's just one thing at work here, one mind, one heart, expressing in many diverse forms. To, to, to have that experience. That's what you are going through right now. That's what my daily life and affairs is about. Every day, every breath that I take. And I have to keep adjusting because I've got an ego pulling me down and saying life is what it appears to be. It's what's being done to you. And a higher self that says, well, there's a certain truth in that, but the bigger truth is Life is what you make it. It's how you, how you look at it and what you do with it, right? And don't resist, right? The suffering is in the resisting. If you just learn to accept where you are, it won't hurt so much. And 
and that's a very, very difficult lesson to learn, and we've got to learn it again and again and again and again. And uh, So the esoteric meaning of Christmas is about the birth of this Christos, or this Buddha nature, and why once a year? Why not every day? in our meditation, in our mindfulness, in every moment, ideally, to do our best to stay this centered and this balanced and to be the one who aspires, the one that capital D desires. And I should speak to this, too. Um, because of the language problems of... Uh, Eastern languages translating to the English language and Eastern philosophies being largely misunderstood. Um, in Buddhism, there is a very strong teaching about eliminating desire. In fact, it's so basic, it's in the Four Noble Truths that life is suffering and that we set it up. The second Noble Truth is that we exacerbate it and set ourselves up for it by the fact that we desire what we don't have. We want things to be different than they are. And that's bad, and you have to kill desire. And uh, it's a philosophy that conflicts directly with the manifest destiny of, of the Western world that wants to go out and accomplish something. And But what it wants to accomplish, of course, is in the physical world. The great American transcendentalists, Thoreau and and, uh, and Emerson and Walt Whitman and John Muir, these were guys that said, you know, fine, you 19th century pioneers, you want to you want to uh, tranquilize, to domesticate, to, to to tame, to pioneer these these new frontiers out here in the world. Well, there is an inner frontier. That's why they were called the transcendentalists. The there is a transcendent frontier within you, a landscape of self that needs exploration and development, too. And if you want to accomplish something, well, start with the inner world and then express that out into the world around you. Imagine if we had done that. Uh, let me know when we begin to do that. That's... <laughs> That's where we are. That's the cr one way of describing the crossroads where we sit right now as a world community. Are we going to continue to be ruled by fear mongers and, and pirates and the worst among us, or are we going to allow the best to begin to gravitate to the top, indeed allow, uh, promote and demand that uh, conscious people interested in peace and justice from the inside out, okay, are those that we elevate to office, not sociopaths and narcissists, uh, because there's somebody you want to uh, have a beer with, or or somebody that seems. Uh, I mean that that I don't want to get too far afield here, but with a month's perspective, a little more than that, looking back on the Sarah Palin thing, boy, what a cynical choice to say that we could win a presidential election by appealing to the simplest, um, least educated, least sophisticated part of our society, play on their fears, and that's the way we'll get into power. And Wow, it's just, 
just amazing. Think about it. We can debate style. We can debate this and that. But we should at least respect people who read books and go to school and dedicate themselves to being reasonable and and, uh, and understanding. It's funny, love and understanding are like two sides of the same coin, I think. Uh, the sword cuts both ways. Love, truth, understanding, uh, consciousness, soul, uh, higher self, all different words for the same thing. So that's really all I wanted to say about the nature of Christmas from an esoteric or philo philosophical point of view, that what we're talking about in a secular sense is Santa Claus and the spirit of giving and sharing, all right? Not unique to Christianity at all, but a wonderful secular holiday. I believe in Santa Claus. Santa is a deva. Uh, Santa is a spirit. And uh, I don't have children, but if I did, I would tell them about Santa Claus. And then when they got old enough to question me, I would say, well, uh, you want to know the truth? Uh, Santa is real, but exists as a spirit, as a energy force, just like you understand uh, other energy that cannot be seen, like radiant heat or, um, uh, you know, radio waves or television waves all around us. You don't see those. Uh, the wind, you don't see until it moves through the trees. and and then you can see its appearance. So there's a lot of invisible things that we learn to work with and, and rely on. And Santa is one of those invisible things. That's how he can get up and down the chimney. And all, that, all of that, don't you see, is you say to the four, five, six-year-old that figures it out, um, is, is part of the fun. We do it for the kids. And no, we didn't lie. It's, it, it's not that Santa is not real. It's Santa is very real, but Santa is a spirit, an energy, a belief system, if you will, a, a, a level of consciousness about the the benefit to you from giving to another. Right? And you can play around with those images too. You know, Santa uh, Santa means saint in Spanish, but it's also an anagram for Satan. And uh, as Arlo Guthrie pointed out. Uh, he wears a red suit, so he must be a communist. He's got long hair, so he must be a pacifist. I wonder what he's really smoking in that pipe. Uh, the Pause of Mrs. Claus by Arlo Guthrie. It is a little bizarre, this Santa Claus guy, uh, as a secular holiday in the way it evolved. The impact of Charles Dickens' Christmas Carol in the mid-19th century on uh, the way Christmas was practiced in England and then later in the United States is a fascinating tale. And uh, even today, the politically correct war on Christmas at the right wing uh, is afraid they're going to lose access to the holiday because people trying to be politically correct say, uh, happy holiday. Uh, you know, I said Merry Christmas to a customer service person the other day. I said, Merry Christmas and happy holidays. And she said, thank you. And she paused. She said, I really appreciate that. And then we uh, we ended her call. I could tell what that was about for her. you know. So I, I have no problem wishing everybody a Merry Christmas and happy holidays. 
again, what we're all celebrating here is the solstice, a new beginning, a rebirth, um, a refinement, um, an improvement, an uplifting, a getting better, an unfolding, you know what you see, of consciousness, of an awareness of who you are as awareness itself. See, that's the conundrum. How do I be conscious of my consciousness? How can I be aware that I exist primarily as the awareness of my consciousness? <laughs> right? To be aware that I'm having the thought is who you are. You're not the thought. What if the thought's wrong? You ever had a thought that was wrong? Well, of course, we all have taken tests, and we have thoughts that are wrong all the time. Right? And if you project your feelings on others, well, I feel you are a, right? And don't take ownership of the feeling. You can be wrong about that. But you can be the awareness of the process of thinking and feeling and acting. You know, we could wake up. That, that great story about the, the peasants quizzing um, the Lord Buddha as he came down through the woods after receiving his enlightenment. They said, are you a god? Are you a, a shaman? Are you uh, a prophet? Are you a wizard? And he said no to all of these things. He said, well, then what are you? You know, he carried a charisma, a, a countenance, as you can imagine, that was just very impressive. And he said, uh, I am awake. That's the esoteric meaning of Christmas. Wake up and smell the coffee. Take a breath. Pull upon your will to love. Don't wait for it to happen to you. Direct your intention and your attention to the idea of discovering who you really are. So that as you know yourself, you can be true to yourself and then could not be false to any man. And then you become, you enter, uh, you enter rapport with humanity, and you see that any injustice in the world is an injustice against you, for you are that, you see. The esoteric meaning of Christmas. Just some thoughts, not the one way for you to believe instead of any other way. Just a little expansion on the way we think about this holiday, what the star in the top of the tree represents, you know, the birth of the spirit, an immaculate conception that can be born right now, born again. Oh, my Lord, dare I go there? Yes, born again. Maybe this is what it really means to be born again. To be born again and again and again, every day, every hour, every breath that you take, every time you catch yourself and say, I am more than this. And you breathe, and as you exhale, you feel the letting go, and you relax. And you begin to access, to climb that ladder, Jacob's ladder, that spiral staircase, if you will, that stairway to heaven moving closer and closer, little by little and bit by bit, toward that elevated perspective of the higher self, the Christos, the Buddha nature, that can be reborn again and again and again. 
and then grown, nourished, trained, <laughs> domesticated, unleashed, released. All right. The greatest reward to being a, a really good person, high ethics and morality, we discussed this last week, the best reward is to yourself, the way it makes you feel. To have a clear and quiet conscience when you sleep. I mean, let's say this guy that just got busted in the $50 billion, <laughs> it's hard to say, not $50 million, $50 billion Ponzi scheme on Wall Street, <clears throat> ripping off all kinds of charities, pensioners, 401k. Let's say he got away with it. He didn't get busted. He didn't get fingered or, or ID'd or arrested. Didn't go. What would his life be like with tens of billions of dollars in personal, personal fortune or even a few billion that he was able to stick in a mattress someplace? But does he have no conscience? What would be the price? that he would pay for that. Now, there are some sociopaths, there are some people who are so psychopathic, sociopathic, or narcissistic that they really do not have a conscience. And they might be able to sleep just fine because that's all they see, that's all they know. Uh, people who lie, cheat, and steal a lot really tend to believe, not all of them, but these sociopaths, that everybody is lying and cheating and stealing. Right. I remember confronting a drug dealer once. It's a long story. I won't go into it. It was years and years ago. But uh, we had, shall we say, a mutual acquaintance. And I confronted this guy because of the way he was behaving, the demands he was making, the implications of what he was saying. And he turned to me and he said, I know who you are and I know what you represent. And you're crazy. I didn't make the world the way it is. And I said, man, yes, you did. The only thing that's crazy is your belief that the world that you've created was done to you. You created the world. Life is the sum of the choices we make. One of my favorite quotations, it's uh, existential, it's Camus. Life, you're responsible, whether you're an atheist or a hardcore religion or a mystic or whatever, um, you are the choices that you make. And even choosing not to choose is a is a choice. I wish we would look more at that. You know. How could you be your thoughts? If you transcend to I am the choice, do I agree with this thought? Do I disagree with that thought? Don't you see how that breaks us out of uh I, I am more than my thoughts? I'm not my car, I'm not my money, I'm not my body, but I'm also not my thoughts because I could Sometimes I have two thoughts that are in conflict. They disagree with each other. Or what about the experience of on second thought? You know that phrase? Well, wait a minute, on second thought. Well, if we're driven by our thoughts, then which thought? The first one or the second one? Right? And what about this wait a minute thing? Of, Hold on, let me rethink this. Well, who's doing the rethinking? And yet, is this in schools, mindfulness, 
Uh, are we going to see it on CNN or MSNBC or the Evening News, a Wall Street Journal, New York Times? Mindfulness? Society wakes up to the fact that it hasn't been awake? No, <laughs> not generally. We get it from each other in situations like this, in class. Study meditation mindfully. And this is the study part. And soon we're going to do the meditation part, and hopefully that will lead you to the mindfulness part. Well, let's uh, check out some of the questions and comments that you've submitted for us today. And uh, it's about ten, nine or ten minutes in front of the hour, and then we'll do a visualization exercise on birth of spirit, rebirth, born again, the birth of the Christos, and awaken ourselves to this day, this week, this new year, this new administration, and all the opportunity that we have around us. Um, let's see. First of all, in Costa Mesa, we have a question from Paul that was submitted actually before we began today. And... Uh, so, Paul, I don't know if you're on or not, but whether you're listening live or to a replay, I'm going to address your question. It's um, It looks like a tough one here. It looks like Paul's saying, uh, how do I keep a positive mental attitude in the face of, of a life that's really gone downhill? He says, from great to horrible in just a few short years, due to what he describes as an incurable medical condition, that might be a good place to begin. I'm not sure there is any such thing, but uh, we'll leave that for now. That causes ferocious chronic pain and prevents almost any social interaction. Well, this is a very severe example of putting this stuff to the test. And, uh, you know, first of all, um, you know, you have my sympathies, my goodness, um, to have chronic pain. Uh, is difficult, and, and if there's not anything that modern medicine can do for you, then it leaves you with little hope other than in hope itself, that nothing is incurable, that just as your life went downhill, it could go back uphill again. In fact, if life is anything, Paul, I would argue that it's change, and that things can only spiral downward for so long before they begin to spiral back up again, you know, to everything there's a season. Everything in nature is cyclic. And so I would argue, easy for me to say, again, that's why it's so difficult for me to answer a question like this, but, yeah, from my seat, it's easy for me to say things have got to get better. I can see that that would be a much greater challenge in your situation, but you got to have hope. First of all, I would reject that anything is incurable. Every seven years, you get a whole new body. Okay. Um, there is such a thing. I, I'm not, I have no details, obviously, of your situation, but there is such a thing as remission. The body wants to heal. The whole universe wants to heal and unfold. Um, so that would be sort of the long-term response. Try to stay positive, hopeful, uh, 
conjure up whatever you can in the way of love and humor <coughs> to and, and optimism and enthusiasm and hope that things can be turned around. In the short term, in the day-to-day or hour-by-hour, breath-by-breath, coping with uh, what you've described as ferocious chronic pain, um, all you can do is mitigate that to varying degrees. And that is done with a refusal to resist the pain, fighting the pain, but not as you oppose the pain. Fighting the pain means comforting and embracing it the way you would treat a child who ran to you in the middle of the night after a bad dream you would hold the child you would comfort the child you would calmly rock the child and reassure the child uh, that it's only a dream now again I know it's risky for me to say to you while you're suffering chronic pain that it's only a dream. It's very difficult probably for you to hear from me. But what I'm really trying to communicate is without invalidating the fact that you're suffering the pain, find the part of you that is most suffering from this pain and comfort that part from a somewhat detached and if possible elevated perspective. You sort of bifurcate the self. You 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 look at the pain body. Eckhart Tolle talks about the pain body. Buddhism, there's a lot about the pain body. And it's possible for you to not be that pain body. Um, maybe there are periods in your existence, in your daily life and affairs, where the pain is not as bad as it is at other times. Watch that. What's happening? Is there a rhyme or a reason to that? Can you get a toehold there? Can you get a foot in the door? Can you use breathing and relaxation? Can you use crying as well as laughing? Can you use surrender as well as fighting to comfort the part of you that suffers, to see what you can learn from the situation and sort of accelerate then the first part of what I was talking about, the hope, rejecting incurable, looking for a cure. Uh, You don't know. Tomorrow there may be a new procedure and some new diagnostics, a new understanding, a new med. Uh, you got to hope that's all you can do. And finally, network with other people who are in a similar situation. That may not be possible for you because I see you're saying that social interaction is pretty much out. So support groups, stuff like that, you might not be able to do. But then again, here you are, so presuming you're with us this morning, maybe you are able to do some of these things and find some support groups of people who are suffering chronic pain or acute pain and how they deal with it. Um, There's a lot you can do with breath and relaxation and visualization to manage pain. Sometimes it's intractable. There's just not much you can do, but uh, do your best. I mean, that's that's a very hardcore challenge to these philosophies, but what else else can you do except try all of this mind over matter stuff? Say to yourself as an affirmation, mind precedes matter. There's a cause before the effect, and the primary cause is consciousness. 
you're going to have to work through all the questions that come up around karma. Remember, there's no bad karma. The universe never punishes you. You're not being punished for anything, right? But there may be opportunities for you to learn things. I don't know what. Maybe compassion for others who suffer. I, I, I can't, based on such little information, really say. But I do have compassion for you and sympathy, and I'm sorry you're going through it. It's, it's tough down here. Life's a bitch. Let's go over to the big island, and Larry says, <coughs> his idea of why time accelerates is because as you get older, uh, each passing year is a smaller percentage of your lifetime. Yeah, he was probably typing that as I went on about uh, David Viscott. That was his idea, too. Uh, that that uh, seems to make sense, seems to be part of it. Another Larry, uh, Larry Larson in Santa Monica, uh, says hello, and uh, hello uh, to Larry. And Irvine, Robert, happy holidays. Merry Christmas to you and Doreen. He says, if Jesus were alive today, He'd probably, oh, oh, no, wait a minute. We would, <laughs> we would probably be dropping bombs on him since he was from the Middle East, not California. So, uh, what is this, Warren? So many Warren types uh, forget that he was a Middle East person and not a white pasty guy, LOL. Yeah, Christ is probably, well, I mean, he's obviously a person of color. Wasn't the, uh, blonde-haired, pale, blue-eyed uh, persona that we see represented in uh, Western uh, artwork. And uh, I always thought if Christ came back today, he'd be in the Almond Brothers band. But I don't know, he'd probably be working for medical marijuana or something. But he sure, certainly would not be in support of Prop A as this... Uh, What's his name? Rick Warren, purpose-driven Rick Warren. His purpose is to deny civil rights in the name of Christ, to deny humanity, and to call an accident of birth and genetics some sin that needs repentance. Can you? Can anybody claim to know Christ and portray him as one who would discriminate against? people based on such an arbitrary thing as their sexual orientation. I mean, you, you can't spend five minutes reading Christian Gospels and, and still suffer that kind of delusion. In fact, not only did Christ say nothing about being gay, uh, he never got married, so maybe he was gay. But that I don't know, I'm really disappointed that Barack Obama couldn't come up with a better uh, choice for the uh, inauguration than, than a bigot. Out in Lancaster, High Desert, Brian says, Merry Christmas to you and your loved ones, Michael. I wanted to share with you uh, a few more quotes from David Vescott. And... Uh, Brian, this is one of my favorites, actually. Probably the best-known David Viscott quote is, to love and be loved is to feel the sun from both sides. But he goes on, you are the answer. Now spend your life defining the question. I like that. I like that very much. He also said, you're here to find your gift, perfect it, and give something back. 
and no matter what, you're still here to give your gift, David Viscott. David was an amazing guy. When I first met David at ABC, I pulled him into the, I was doing news on the FM side, KLOS in Los Angeles, and I pulled David into the newsroom one afternoon and I sat him down. And I said, David, you are a medical doctor and a psychiatrist who is the most grounded, most real person I've ever met. I'm paraphrasing myself. How'd you do it? How did you survive medical school? How, how can you be a medical doctor and a human being? I don't mean to insult medical doctors, but David was amazing. David, you know, David, the medical doctor, he can write you drug scripts anytime he wants, but he, I would walk into the studio and see him doing Reiki on one of the engineers, you know, laying on of hands and energy projection, a medical doctor and a psychiatrist of all people. And uh, David was a, a remarkable guy. Oddly, he always had chronic back pain, and as I remember, died from a heart attack at uh, far too young an age. But David is a wonderful guy. Had his own line of greeting cards and uh, wrote some wonderful books. The Making of a Psychiatrist is one of them. He wrote another book called Risking. Wrote another book called The Language of Feelings. Nice to remember, David. In Hollywood, Florida, Carolina is calling, is listening, and she says, Hello, my name is Carolina Haya, and I love your information, but I'm having trouble listening to the teleseminar. I don't, I, let's see, I do not know if it is my computer, but the sound is too low. Anyway, I think I can download this to my iPod. Yes, you can. Um, you can also get a podcast, and I'll tell you how to do that in a minute. That's even easier. So you can listen to it many times. Uh, this is what I've been doing with some of your previous shows, and she leaves uh, her email address for me. So I'll make sure you're on the email list. Um, in fact, I better copy that now, or when I end this, I'm going to lose it. You know what you can do? No, I'll do this for you. But in the future, I'm going to do this for you so you don't have to do it. But in the future, anybody that wants to sign up for the newsletter that brings you to this uh, event every week, just go to my website, theagelesswisdom.com. Remember the T-H-E, theagelesswisdom.com. And right on the front splash page, you'll see a big button that says free newsletter, Michael's free newsletter. Click on that, and a page will come up where you can enter your first name and your email address, and you'll be good to go, okay, from that point. And we'll make sure you're whitelisted. You come in automatically whitelisted, and uh, so that makes it easy. But, uh, Carolina, I'll do that for you today. And, um, oh, as far as the level being low, that may be your computer, although I've heard that from other people. Um I'm not sure what to say about that. I have no way of driving the audio output any higher. I can't turn it up. It's a telephone company deal. And maybe it is louder on the replay. You can sometimes powered speakers help, you know, for 15 or 20 dollars on up to 300 dollars. 
you can get powered speakers to put in the headphone jack to your computer and uh, adjust the volume, get a little more oomph that way. Uh, I get a set for $15 here. works just fine. Plug it into the wall, put the jack in the computer, voila, all kinds of great sound. Okay. So <clears throat> let's see. Did I speak to all of those things? And welcome. Nice to have you on board. Cur be curious to know how you found out about this. Oh, also, when you go to that website, theagelesswisdom.com, if you click on the home page, you can go inside and then click on Web Teleconference. You'll see the upcoming event a couple of days before, the archive of all the past events, uh, audio archives that you can listen to the past classes. And then at the very bottom of that page, you can subscribe to the podcast of this mystery school if you want to do it automatically. In Tucson, uh, Laurel lies with us again, says Merry Christmas and Happy Holidays, and uh, back at you, Laurel Lye. Nice to hear from you as always. Another Irvine caller. This is a, We have two Roberts in Irvine, and uh, this is our ham radio, Robert. He says, uh, if as in Genesis we are said to be created in the image of God, could it be that we're immaculately conceived in the mind of God? Yes, very good. I like that. Um, we are immaculate in that uh, we begin perfect in being. We are also conceived, indicating that we begin or originate from the divine. Yeah, that's very much what I'm attempting to say today. And uh, immaculate can mean more than not sex. It can mean of spirit than of the material world. So. Let's see. Uh, Larry and Hilo checking in again, saying Santa's about giving nothing expected in return, something that all kids' spirits uh, should be infused with. Yeah, the idea of giving is incomplete. If by giving you're keeping track, <laughs> and the Christmas card list is a perfect example, you know, like uh we didn't get a Christmas card last year from Bill and Sally, so this year they're off the list. Or you decide who to give gifts to based on who is giving gifts back to you, right? So you can't do that, obviously. Well, you could try to do that. I don't think it would work for you. Somebody's trying to reach me on the cell phone. Later. In religious science, we say that uh, Christ is not a person but a principle, which... Um, comes alike, and that may be alive in each and all. Christ is the embodiment of the divine sonship and therefore a universal presence. And yeah, in a lot of my training, the Christos or the Christ by the Son of Spirit stands at the interface of spirit and matter, between the Father Spirit and Mother Matter. All right? So it represents then the soul that sits at the right hand of the Father. The Christos represents, said another way, then the overshadowing soul, which is what? Consciousness or awareness of who you are. Again, the Buddha nature. Uh, Robert goes on, when the will of division gives way to the will of unity, uh, we bring that presence forth to share amongst us. Yeah. I like the Jimi Hendrix quote. He said, when the power of love uh, overcomes the love of power, then we'll have peace on earth. 
let's see. In Cerritos, Kareem says Merry Christmas. And uh, Sal, here's a fellow I haven't heard from in a while. Hello, Sal in Los Angeles. Salamendez, happy holidays. And uh, thanks for keeping your ageless wisdom mystery school going. And Feliz Navidad, Sal. And uh, Larry has found a, uh, a link to David Viscott that he recommends in Wikipedia, which uh, you can check out, en.wikipedia.org slash wiki slash David underscore Viscott. Too much to pass, I guess, verbally, but uh, there you go. David Viscott. I love Wikipedia. I get, I get a lot from Wikipedia. I really do. Even though I don't see it as the ultimate, I mean, you know, anybody can post anything on the Internet, but that's the way I always did journalism. I, I never relied on one particular source. I would always get the AP story and then the UPI story and then the Reuters story and put them all together into a rewrite. You know, I never, well, hardly ever did rip and read wire copy. Um and, and that's what we're supposed to do, is find truth in many different sources. And Wikipedia is one. It's a good one. And uh, Kareem and Cerritos uh, says, can you compare and contrast the gospel message and the esoteric Christmas message a bit? Um, well, really not beyond what I've already done. And again, the gospel message varies. It's surprising how little is said. I think it's only one gospel that really has... Isn't it Luke that has that whole Christmas story of, and the wise men and the star in the east? And most of the Christian Gospels don't even talk about that stuff. So it's an awful long time ago. There is the esoterics of the star, the idea that the wizards and, and shamans in that area, the magicians, were astrologers. The three kings of the Orient, or the Magi, were wizards. They were shamans. They were mystics, like most of the people on this call today. Spiritual, but not religious. Uh, pagan, in a sense, in that they saw the divine in all things. Uh, spiritually imminent in all things. And uh, even the idea of being born in a manger, in a cave, you know, Mangers are usually portrayed as a little shed built out of wood where the animals stayed. Well, if there were sheds made out of wood in those days, people would be in them. Animals were usually housed in a corral uh, without any shelter at all or um, often as not in caves. And so the idea of Christ being born surrounded by animals in a cave that, too, is esoteric. The animals represent the animal nature of, of man. This would be Christ as the Son of Man. Remember, Christ is the Son of God, but also described many places as the Son of Man. Well, there you have the middle. Son of God would be, um, you know, the spiritual end, and the Son of Man would be the material end. And so between spirit and matter is the soul or the consciousness. So the animals would represent the material uh, part, and then the cave, the spirit. And cave, wow. The idea of the cave, I could do a whole show just on the cave. This is very esoteric, very veiled stuff. Um, 
this is sort of forbidden knowledge. You're not even supposed to talk about this stuff, but what the hell, we're trying to save the world here. When old philosophers talked about picking your brain, they meant it literally. They would, <laughs> they would, they would find cadavers or bodies or we won't even go into how they happened to do that, but they wanted to get their hands on the brain, and then they would go through the brain. And they were trying to find where spirit dwelled inside the brain. And they found the third ventricle, the biggest of all the cavities or hollows inside the brain. And the third ventricle is essentially in the middle of your brain. It's where cerebral spinal fluid forms. And it's called the dew of the alchemist. And it's, it's, if you drew a line straight down through the crown of the head and another one straight in from the agenda between the eyebrows straight into the brain, they would intersect, ideally, uh, approximately, in this third ventricle, in this place where the dew of the alchemist and the cerebral spinal fluid forms. So the ancients said this is where to meditate because this is the hollow where spirit dwells inside the brain. They opened up the heart. They also found ventricles or hollows. And so they said, well, these would be the spaces where the spirit dwells in the head and the heart. Well, voila, we have thoughts and feelings. And if you meditate on the head and meditate on the heart, you get benefits <laughs> uh, in the way you think and the way you feel. To meditate in the, in, the, in the manger, in the cave, in the hollow of the head would balance the animal nature. And again, just some of the esoterics involved in, in Christmas and, and the Christmas message. All right. Um, let's see. It's about 16 minutes after the hour. Let's do a quick visualization exercise, and I'll let you guys go. Again, I really appreciate you being here and wish you all a Merry Christmas and Happy Holidays. I don't see why we can't do this again next week. I love it. It's the holidays. My wife lets me do this. And, um, I mean, even when she's got a list of Christmas things for me to do, we're going to put up the tree today. And always something to do. But I'll be here, so if you can join us every Sunday, including next Sunday, at uh, 1 o'clock West Coast time, 4 o'clock in the East, 21 hours uh, GMT, uh, we'll be here. And uh, you'll find out a little bit later in the week uh, what the theme will be, what the topic will be. Um, I can tell you that the uh, topic we're going to do next week on Focus Passion site, the premium uh, podcast that Steve and I do called Finding Yourself in Paradise. We've just finished the Family Learning Hour, and this coming week we're going to podcast a program on the nature of things, on nature, Mother Nature, but also on the relationship of human nature to Mother Nature and what it means to connect to the earth. Okay, We'll have a very pagan celebration with the Finding Yourself in Paradise podcast. And that's at FocusPassion.com. Hope you go there and join those who are on the contributor list. It's uh, pennies a week, less than a dollar a week. You can be a contributor. 
not only receive the podcast, but more importantly, send an unlimited number of those programs to people that you think you will benefit for no fee at all, for no charge whatsoever. I think that's the coolest part of being a contributor for 99 cents a week at FocusPassion.com or more. Lots of people contribute more than that, but we figure at 99 cents uh, everybody can get on board and and help pay for the uh, broadband fees to send unlimited programs to an unlimited, unlimited number of your friends. Okay, And we'll just roll it out that way. So providing this is a good time for you, I want you to get comfortable and plump up the pillows, move your body a little bit, get nice and straight, and uh, throw your shoulders back, open up your chest and your abdomen. Uh, Take a nice, slow, deep breath or two. Do it slowly. Inhale through your nose and exhale just as slowly. And feel the letting go as you exhale. Some people like to inhale twice as fast as they exhale. So if you're counting and it takes one, two seconds to inhale, then exhale one, two, three, four, all the way out. Okay, it's all kinds of breathing exercises you can learn from yoga. Breath of fire, alternating nostrils. But just a few slow, deep breaths, creating a sigh of relief, a sigh of release, feeling very safe, allowing yourself ah, to feel safe and relaxed. Create within your body, from head to toe, a sensation of letting go feeling muscles unwinding and relaxing. Feel the letting go, feeling safe in your body. And with your eyes closed, I want you to, again, without any effort, simply by gently forming the intention with your mind, allow yourself to remember pleasant holiday memories of Christmas. Remember the best Christmases you ever had. And if Christmas was not celebrated in your house, maybe you celebrated Hanukkah or Ramadan, or maybe there was no celebration at all, think of family holidays that did bring you together, where there was love and joy and happiness and lots of food and your cousins all came over and allowing yourself now without effort to recall the way this time of year at its best looked to you and hear the sounds of Christmas might be sleigh bells. It might be that sleigh ride song that has the gunshot at the end and the horse that goes, yeah. Or Burl Ives singing Holly Jolly Christmas. Maybe it's just the sound of kids singing or carolers or the 
choir at church. See the images and hear the sounds of the best Christmas memories that you have. And smell the smells. There's food in the oven. Somebody just might be making cookies or something good to eat. And feel the warmth of the holiday. And remember how, as we got older, the emphasis slowly began to change from being a child and understandably looking forward to what did I get. And little by little, as you got older, the excitement shifted more toward, I can't wait to see the expression on their face when I give them this. It's still about getting something, but not in kind. You're just getting a warm, fuzzy feeling of contentment and fulfillment. It is very loving and harmonious as a result of giving, and maybe even higher frequencies of giving that have no expectation of any kind, material or otherwise. Is complete giving with the hope that others will enjoy or benefit somehow from your gift. <coughs> and notice how you feel when I ask you to ask yourself how it does feel to remind yourself that it's the thought that counts. It's not really the gift. Maybe you would have rather had the red one than the blue one, but the thought that counts. Somebody gave you this. You don't have to like it to appreciate the gift. Because they, by all appearances, gave you a gift, a material thing in most cases, but How does that rate compared to their intention, their willingness to give you something to share? And for what reason? And finally, just consider in this wonderful state of peace and goodwill safe and relaxed. Consider that the meaning of Christmas cannot be given to you, but must come from you. That the meaning of Christmas, in its most literal, but especially in its most esoteric sense, is your perception and your discernment and what you bring to this holiday, regardless of what it may or may not have done for you in the past, regardless of what it might have represented in the past. If we come from severely dysfunctional families, we may have very few wonderful memories of Christmas. 
never too late to bring new meaning, to be born again, the Christos, the Buddha nature within you, born again this Christmas. Maybe several times throughout that day, and maybe the day after Christmas, born again as an awakening within you of your personal, yeah, but also spiritual potential. To aspire to be <clears throat> the best person that you could possibly be. Even though you're going to mess up from time to time, you keep trying. Give it that college try. Keep hoping, waiting for the pendulum to swing, looking for opportunity where others see only darkness, finding the silver lining, because that's your job. That's part of what you do. Bring these feelings with you effortlessly back to the waking state as you consciously now reorient yourself to the room in which you sit, to the sound of my voice. Take a nice, slow, deep breath, breathing in the joy of Christmas and the love of the highest frequency of love you can experience. Exhale and open your eyes wide awake and alert, refreshed and rested, back in the room feeling fine. And hopefully, in the Christmas spirit, feeling sort of good about the holidays, however secular or religious or universal your understanding of this holiday. And again, I hope it's a wonderful holiday for you. Thank you so very, very much. Mahalo for being with us in this Ageless Wisdom Mystery School class today. Tell your friends about it. Forward the emails you get. Use the Share One to a Friend gadget on theagelesswisdom.com. And for those on the web now, whether you're live or listening to a replay, look in the lower right-hand corner and you'll see a bunch of links for my site, for the audio archives for this event, for the uh, newsletter and the comment blog. And the biggest button of all, Unleash Inner Peace. Click on that to go to FocusPassion.com and become a contributor so that you can share not only this program, but the premium audio program that Steve and I do together, the best of personal development, okay? Much more available and accessible than some of the esoterics we do in this class is that Finding Yourself in Paradise program at FocusPassion.com. Dot com. Be a contributor for as little as 99 cents a week. And uh, tell your friends about that, too. Again, thanks so much. Have a wonderful, wonderful week. We'll be here next week, the, what will it be, the 28th, between Christmas and New Year's. Hope you'll join us then. And as 